0: This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now here is your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I'm thrilled and excited to have Rob Wolf. He's a former research biochemist, a two-time New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of The Paleo Solution, Wired to Eat, and also co-author of Sacred Cow, which is one of my favorite books that I've read this year. He has helped transform lots of lives of thousands of people around the world via his podcast, books, and seminars. He's functioned as a review editor for the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism and as a consultant for the Naval Special Warfare Resiliency Program. He serves on multiple boards and I'm so excited to have you with us today. Thank you so much for carving time out of your super busy schedule. It sounds like most of us, 2020 has been an interesting
1: year. It has been. I've been joking that I've wanted to do like some sort of a valium bender and then just, you know, wake up in a couple of weeks. But a couple of weeks wouldn't have been enough. Like it's looking like it's gonna be quite a protracted affair. Yeah.
0: Totally. And and much like you had mentioned, you know, lots of people in the United States are reevaluating their lives, deciding if where they live geographically is working well for them. And I know, you know, you have a family at home and certainly for us at trying to explain to teenagers that this new normal hopefully is not going to be a new normal for very long. That's my hope and intention that 2021 will be a lot less eventful.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, if it beats 2020, then we pissed off the gods and goddesses somewhere, someway, somehow. So yeah.
0: Totally. Yeah. Totally. Well, I know that I know quite a bit about your background, but some of the listeners may not be as familiarized. I know that many of us that come to this you know, space where we're really looking to, you know, pivot and make some tremendous impact in people's lives, sharing information that might be not considered to be the norm, not the standard dogma. Can you tell, share with the listeners a little bit about your background? Because it sounds like you started off with some health issues. And at the time, I think when you were in school, uh, you were actually a vegetarian, which I found really interesting.
1: Yeah, you know, a very long time ago, I was a state powerlifting champion, um, have always been interested in human performance. Both of my parents, unfortunately, were pretty sick. Both of them smoked. My dad drank. They had a pretty standard American diet. And, you know, early into observing that downward slide, though, I suspected that there were better ways to live, that if we ate and exercised and lived in ways different than what my parents were doing, you know, there might be some better outcomes And in tinkering with that, in my undergrad, I kind of started tinkering with a vegetarian diet when I was looking at medical school or graduate program had shifted to a vegan diet. And for me and my digestion and my genetics and everything, it did not work. Like I'm probably about 160, 165 pounds right now, pretty good shape for a getting to be old guy. But at the low ebb of the ulcerative colitis that I had, I was 130, 125, 130 pounds. So imagine 30 or 40 pounds less of me here. And I was crushingly sick. And there were a lot of factors there. I was living in Seattle. I suspect my vitamin D was probably at nearly undetectable levels. Like that wasn't something that was really on my radar. Just that whole circadian biology piece, I didn't understand particularly well. I was definitely living off of the fumes of my twenties, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Sleep is for the week. You know, I mean, I was trying to get into these graduate programs where people wore their sleep deprivation, like a badge of honor. And I, I don't think that the vegan diet was a good fit for me. And I continue to believe that, but I also think that there were a lot of other factors that played into that. I don't think I could have stayed on that, that dietary practice long-term, but had I moved to Costa Rica and been a surf instructor I think I could have stretched it out longer. I think I would have still had to peel that out because I just do better at the lower carb side of things for a host of reasons. But it was literally kind of a perfect storm. I wasn't sleeping. I had terrible circadian entrainment, you know, like no light. I lived in a basement apartment that had a tiny window that faced north. So like, I mean, it was horrible. You know, looking back, I can't even believe I survived all that. But that is kind of what brought me to a health crisis and through kind of an interesting set of circumstances, the idea that some sort of an ancestral way of eating and living kind of got on my radar. My mother had some very similar health problems. She was ultimately diagnosed with a lupus, Sjogren's, a whole interconnected complex of autoimmune conditions, celiac disease. And so the celiac was really the first thing that got on my radar. And I started You know, by removing uh, gluten out of my diet and noticed a huge improvement, went very low carb, ketogenic. And it was just the most miraculous thing in the world for me. It was like this fog that I had lived in for seemingly my whole life up until then. And I was about 28 years old at this point. Virtually all of my life up till that point, I feel like I was living in a fog. Like it felt like the world was about, A meter or two outside of where my head was and every once in a while the fog would clear and I'd have these Kind of moments of clarity, but I definitely don't do well with tons of carbs I definitely don't do well with grains And when I finally removed all of those out of my diet, it was just a shocking health transformation for me And again, this was around 1998 And I went into my house and started poking around on this search term called a paleolithic diet, which at that point, nobody knew what this was. There were literally maybe a couple hundred researchers around the world that knew what this was. I tracked down some information on it, and it really spoke to a lot of the problems that I was having. And it was interesting because it kind of shined a light on the abject failure that would have been me going into a conventional medical route, like becoming a physician. I would have spent all this time learning about pathology when what I wanted to do was work with people on their health. And so I really knew that a medical route wasn't a good fit. I explored a variety of different PhD routes, but this was again very early into the scene. People like Dom Diagostino and and you know different folks that have really fantastic research, you know, PhD opportunities. These things didn't exist then. I mean, it was very orthodox, nutritional biochemistry, the stuff that I was interested in, nobody else was interested in. There was no way I was going to get a graduate degree in that, or at least not particularly easily. And it was right around this time that, again, I was kind of poking around on the interwebs and I found this wacky workout online called CrossFit. And I started doing it. My friend, Dave Warner, who's a retired Navy SEAL, started doing it with me. We were working out in his garage. And before we knew it, we had 15 or 20 people that were working out with us. And we reached out to the Glassmans, the founders of CrossFit, and we said, hey, we're running a gym. We want to open a formal commercial facility. Can we call it CrossFit. And they said, yes, go be Achieve. And so that was the first CrossFit affiliate gym in the world, uh, CrossFit North up in Seattle. And so I plugged into that very early paleo CrossFit ancestral health scene and uh, I guess influenced a lot of it, but also definitely, you know, rode the wave of all of those kind of intersecting movements. Yeah.
0: I think it's absolutely fascinating how sometimes, you know, healing ourselves, we kind of create this space for where we need to be in time and space. And I agree with you. And I think we're probably the same age because it was the late 1990s when I was in Baltimore doing all my medical training. And back then, even now, the traditional Western medicine mindset and model does not really embrace nutrition. In fact, it's so highly aligned with. My plate and the food guide pyramid, which is full of all the things that you were pulling out of your diet, and you were seeing right. this tremendous benefit. And I always like to, you know, kind of share some perspective. I'm like, yes, I'm Western medicine trained, but I recall years and years ago I got treated for Lyme, and six months later I developed psoriasis. And I there was never this connection, but you know, being on antibiotics created this, you know, hyperpermeability in my small intestine, which created leaky gut, which gave me the autoimmune issue. And so, you know, many years later, when I was putting all those pieces together and a wonderful functional medicine provider said, hey, you realize these all go together. And I went gluten free and it completely cured the psoriasis. And so, you know, there's such little focus on all the things in the pieces you're talking about getting, you know, making sure that your vitamin D levels are optimal because it's not just about the vitamin, it's immune function, it's blood sugar mm-hmm. regulation. I mean, there's so many pieces that we don't talk about. And then, you know, the pieces of, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead. I mean, I recall many in my twenties thinking that, you know, sleep was something I would do later in my life. I didn't really need to worry about that, but how important nutrition is. And, you know, adding in that, you know, you mentioned that you developed one of the first CrossFit gyms, which I think is amazing. So clearly physical activity, being active, being moving your body and giving your body, you know, less processed foods is certainly a really profoundly beneficial and, and for many people life-changing change that can evolve from that so you kind of went on that path and then at some point i imagine your first book probably became kind of arose out of a desire for people to learn more about what you were doing because you were seeing such incredible results
1: yeah you know we had the good fortune of traveling all around the world and giving an eight hour seminar on nutrition, mainly under the auspice of CrossFit, but then I ended up kind of breaking away from them at some point. And it was definitely this strong ancestral health model. It would you know sleep, food, movement, circadian biology. And what happened is that I wanted to be able to cover more and more material with folks and really answer q and a and kind of go deep. And so I started writing an ever lengthening kind of uh, manual for these seminars. And I still have some video of one. I mean, it was eight hours and I just went and I can't even believe that I did multiple of those some weekends, you know, but it was eight hours and just I had jokes in it and all kinds of stuff. But this manual started getting bigger and bigger and ev- eventually it hit about 150 printed pages. And a friend of mine said, you know, you could probably publish that as a book. And he just happened to be part of a publishing house. But the ironic thing is the publishing house up to that point, it's called Victory Belt. They had never done anything except martial arts instructional books, Brazilian jiu-jitsu things like that. But I, I thought, well, why the heck not? You know, we'll go ahead and do this. And so that was the payload solution. And it sold nearly a million copies. And really, there wasn't a paleo diet genre prior to that book like you know amazon barnes noble when you went in at that time there was kind of low carb and vegetarian and whatnot but the whole concept of like a paleo diet section didn't really exist and then ironically victory belt i think they went on to publish maybe like 90 95 percent of the books in that genre and they've done really well but it was definitely to the degree i think that first book was really successful it was really Reflective of the just thousands of conversations that I had with people, and even some of the jokes and kind of one liners, and they're like, it was funny. Like, I would be able to predict with uncanny ability when I hit one part of my talk, I knew that these three questions were going to pop up, and I would just stop. I'd say, Okay four or five people in the audience have these three questions and I would list them off and people are like, holy smokes. But when you've done this thing, like literally a thousand or 2000 times, you know, it starts becoming a little bit rote. But what was cool about that is that it really had, I written the book just based off of the research knowledge I had say like five years earlier. It would have been a very unsuccessful book because it didn't involve that relational element and that back and forth. And there were all of these excuses and, you know, kind of squirrely mind games that people would play on themselves that I was able to address in the book in a, a playful, hopefully fun way. And then that kind of unloaded some of the emotionality and the kind of baggage that people bring into like diet and lifestyle change. So it was, again, a lot of hard work, but also some very good timing that allowed all Of that to happen the way it did.
0: I love when things kind of come about so organically. And one thing that I certainly value a great deal about your work and your message is that you are also someone that likes to do away with outdated dogma, you know, things that we've been conditioned to believe for years and years and years that we later find out are grossly, horrendously wrong. So Let's pivot a little bit and a lot of what the paleo diet and, and I remind people of this is that it's really encouraging people to eat less processed, although certainly paleo, keto, carnivore, I mean, what a vegetarian or vegan there's plenty of junk food that's out there. So I remind people right. that it's still, you know, that's still a treat, you know, fat bombs are good, but you know, that's still you have to think about it as dessert. So, you know, we'll pivot a little bit and I have to talk about Wired to Eat because it's a book that I recommend to my patients all the time. One of my monthly groups read it over the summer because I was getting frustrated slash humored by all the questions because we're a very carbohydrate focused culture and mm-hmm. so, you know, trying to get people to kind of wrap their minds around the fact that, you know, there's bioindividuality rules. What works for you may not work for me, may not work for my husband or, you know, any of my patients. So let's talk a little bit about some of the dogma that gets disproven when you're eating a nutrient dense whole foods diet. And probably the one that I always say I'm embarrassed, but I always say when we know better, we do better. But when I started practicing as a nurse practitioner and I talked about mini meals and eating all day long and, you know, having those three meals and eating within 30 minutes of getting up and having your protein shake when you go to the gym or right afterwards, but let's unpack some of this, you know, the eating all as one of many, you know, dogmas that I know that you like to disprove. You know, this kind of being overfed culture mindset that we have here, not only in the United States, but most westernized countries, I think it probably came out of good intentions, but obviously being overfed is making us a very sick, ill population. Like I've mentioned, not just here in the United States, but in so many other countries as well as we're seeing escalating rates of metabolic diseases mm-hmm. and obesity.
1: Yeah. What angle would you like me to take around that? It's a lot to unpack. Do you have a preferred kind of angle to, to tackle on that?
0: Do I have a preferred angle? What I would say is, I think it's important for people to understand what actually happens in our bodies when we're eating constantly, when we're secreting insulin all day long. I just think there's value in that. And then we can kind of pivot and talk about the macros piece, which I think-
1: Sure. You know, uh, a good friend of mine, Peter Attia has a really, he's such a brilliant guy, like 10 times smarter than I am, at least 20 times better looking as well. So he's really a force to be reckoned with, but- he has this great way of looking at nutrition where we can think about the composition is kind of one lever, you know, protein, carbs, fat. We could think about the amounts, which is, you know, uh, total caloric load. Also, you can think about the protein, carb, fat ratio. Then we could think about timing, you know, when. Do we eat? When do we not eat? And I think he had one other distinction in there, but it's interesting because, you know, as kids, I think that we were kind of raised under the three meals and maybe a snack, you know, and I remember my mom would say, finish your breakfast, lunch or what have you, because the kitchen is closed and you're not going to come. And it was basically get out of the house. And if I see you again, I'm going to find something terrible. For you to do, like, I don't want to see you again until the next meal or until it's dark or, you know, whatever. And then that did shift. It's interesting, you know, with the kind of advent of the high carb, low fat story, late 80s, early 90s, it became this story of like, no, you need to eat all the time you know, three meals a day, three snacks, for the love of God, don't let 20 minutes go without you like chewing on something or your metabolism is going to crater. And I can't help but wonder if that was kind of an outgrowth of shifting people away from a more protein and fat centric diet. And then they were just hungry all the damn time. (laughs) So it's like, well, clearly you need to eat all the time, you know, but this maybe illustrates this story better than anything that I've seen. But most people are aware with of the idea that, Calorie restriction has some benefits with like longevity and health and whatnot. There's some studies that suggest that there's some strong longevity benefits in animals, although I have some real pushback on a lot of that. I think mainly what these studies are showing is that overfeeding animals bad lab diets is worse than underfeeding them bad lab diets. And that's the total story. But there was a really fascinating study that was done in both animals and humans where these folks were fed a hypocaloric diet. It was about 10% below what their maintenance was. So there was some weight loss associated with it and whatnot. One group did two meals a day. One group basically had like eight meals a day where they were eating constantly. The eight meal a day group, even though they were calorie restricted, even though they lost weight, did not see metabolic benefits on the eight meals a day program. Their blood glucose levels were higher, their triglycerides were higher, their systemic inflammatory markers, like right, C reactive protein, were all higher. And in a situation where you just can't even imagine, That their health didn't improve. They lost weight, which should be like kind of the gold standard for, you know, seeing metabolic improvement. But that constant feeding, there are some animals that are kind of wired for constant feeding and humans are not one of them. I will say that there is genetic variation there. or There are some people that seem to benefit from more feedings versus fewer teenagers, I would make the case pretty much like hook a feedback to them and let them, yeah. you know, about as, as much as they can, particularly teenage boys, if they're athletic, like there's just not really an off switch there, but they have more anabolic hormones going through their body than, a, you know, whole NFL football leagues. So it's kind of, you know, appropriate there. And we have this window of time where they're growing and that's understood, but Yeah, that study that looks at calorie restriction, but constant feeding and a complete lack of metabolic benefits, that's one of the most striking things that I've ever seen. I see this go to the extreme on the other side, though, where people get super excited about, say, like OMAD, like the one meal a day programs, and now these like extended periods of fasting. And the problem that I see with that, people are really afraid of a lot of different things these days. We're afraid of carbohydrate, and then we become afraid of protein because it stimulates these genes like MTOR, and these are associated with cancer and cardiovascular disease and whatnot. And it seems very compelling when you look at kind of the surface treatment of this, but again, these stories about like MTOR overactivation and being a causal in cancer and cardiovascular disease and whatnot are always in the context of overeating. We don't see that same story when people are eating enough, but not overeating. And it's very hard to actually track those people down. But, you know, again, to your point, you look outside of kind of our standard Western culture and you find people like this, like kind of Mediterranean diet, blue zone type stories. But the crazy flip side of this is that people are getting really geeked out on not eating frequently enough. And I find a lot of people that are heading into sarcopenia, they're losing muscle mass at a remarkable rate. And, you know, once you hit about your late twenties, early thirties, if you're not actively doing strength training, if you're not really eating enough protein, we will start losing muscle mass with time. And this is something that kind of makes me crazy uh, for all of us. Cancer is a possibility. Cardiovascular disease is a possibility. Neurodegenerative disease is a possibility. Sarcopenia and loss of muscle mass is a certainty. It will happen to all of us. And so this avoidance of protein, this uh, really crazy adherence to Super infrequent eating, like one meal a day and stuff like that. I think that that could be as injurious as the overeating side of the equation, uh, but just in very different ways. And so I'm kind of a crazy person that I think two meals and maybe a snack is probably a good place to be and try to be very protein centric. The one meal a day story is almost impossible to get enough protein to get that anabolic signaling to maintain muscle mass two meals makes it much easier, two meals and a snack makes it quite easy, keep all that protein centric. And, you know, good things seem to happen with that. And that focus on protein intake, protein is the most satiating macronutrient that we can eat. And we do uh, resets within our community, the healthy rebellion all the time. And we I mean, literally, never do we find a person who has struggled with weight loss, who was eating adequate protein, like it, Never, ever, ever happens. And once the person eats adequate protein, they're just like, this is magic. I can't believe like everything's easy. And and sometimes it's hard to get people to eat enough protein. They may have some digestive issues that we need to figure out, provide some digestive support and whatnot. And I know I ended up going all over the place with that. But yeah, it's a crazy tour de force, I guess, where on the one hand, we're told sometimes that we should be eating all the time. And then the flip side of that is that we should be spending you know, two weeks out of the month fasting and only eating one meal a day on the days that we do eat. And then, you know, the. I really think that the logical place to be is somewhere quite far away from both of those. You know, it's two, two and a half meals a day, very protein centric and, you know, get about a gram of protein per pound of ideal body weight, which is is a non-trivial amount. You got to really get in and work hard to get that. But when folks do that, Just magic happens. And then from there, it's maybe you run better on higher carb. Maybe you run better on lower carb. But so long as we hit that protein story, everything falls into place and is comparatively easy. If we don't get that protein story right, it doesn't matter what else we do. Nothing really works particularly well.
0: Well, there is so much in what you said, and I'm over here doing like a a happy dance because everything that you're saying so closely aligns with what I teach and what I talk about And earlier this year, I met Dr. Gabrielle Lyon and and I jokingly Mm -hmm. tell her first thing she said, and she was absolutely lovely. First thing she said when she met me, she goes, you're not eating enough protein. And I just looked at her and she said, I can guarantee you're not eating enough protein. She was like, you're tiny, you're little, I can guarantee you're not eating enough protein. And from that point forward, it completely shifted, even though I was eating quite a bit of protein, but probably not enough. It has been my experience that women in particular do themselves an enormous disservice because they're probably eating 50 or 60 grams a day, and they should be doing 120, 150. And you really have to work, as you said, very diligently to get that amount of protein into your diet. And much to your point about sarcopenia, I'm obviously in my forties. And the last couple of years I've noticed I have to work really hard to put muscle on. And I find that whether irrespective of gender, that most, if not all of us are not consuming enough protein. And you mentioned it's very satiating, which is critical because when you eat enough protein, like I say to my teenage boys, I have two of them and they're both athletic, which means our grocery bills are scary and they're just getting bigger. Right. In fact, I say to my husband, you have to cook more protein. You can't cook less because <laughs> they'll eat two or three you know, grass fed bison burgers at a time. Right. But the point being that anyone who's listening, I can almost guarantee you that you're not consuming enough protein. So that's, you know, one big takeaway. The second piece is we're all going to age because the alternative is not one thing that I'm ready to wrap my head around. And sarcopenia is no joke. So as we lose muscle, and this is really important for people to understand muscle is, if you think about, like, I always say I do legs day twice a week, because the more muscle mass we have, Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise. So you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients, and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeka during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans-resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification doctoranna.com slash Cynthia. That's ten percent off your first pur- that's ten percent off your first purchase by using the link doctoranna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious the more insulin receptors we have. And Mm -hmm. and especially as women are getting older and I don't understand male physiology as much as I do women's, but we have these estradiol, these estrogen receptors in our muscle. And so if you're losing estrogen as you're getting older, which is a normal function of aging, you have to be even more deliberate about making sure you're doing things to strength train, because when we have less muscle, we become a little more insulin resistant. And as yep. we were talking about the hormone piece, if we're not unpacking that and understanding that you could be thin and still be insulin resistant, it is not something that's exclusive to people who are obese or visibly overweight. You can be thin and still have that. So when you're working with your people, what are some of the strategies that you do when you're trying to get them to boost their protein intake? And before I have you answer that, the OMAD thing drives me absolutely bananas because I work in the fasting space. And I'll say to people, if it's around the holiday and you overeat, I get it. The next day, do OMAD and move on and do your normal two or three meals, whatever you can fit into your feeding window. But what concerns me enormously is when men and women will say, oh, I can get two thousand calories in in a two hour feeding window. I'm like, I don't know who you are. Maybe you're one of my teenage kids, but for the average person, you just can't get your macros in. you can't get right. enough food in you know during that very, very short feeding window. But when you're working with people, what are some of the ways that you strategize? Because protein is so satiating, sometimes people they with their first meal, if they're fasting or not fasting, they will eat too much and then they're not hungry. And then that's the other issue that can be problematic that I find.
1: Yeah. You know, first we try to make folks aware of where they are currently. So I don't know if it's an artifact of having been a chemist and weighing and measuring every (laughs) damn thing that happened in my life, but I'm really not a big fan of like the food scales and measuring and everything. They have a place, but I feel like it has a short-term run. Like it's handy as a check-in But I'm not one of those folks that's like weigh and measure every one of your meals. I know there are people out there that are successful with that. Maybe I'm lazy, maybe it's a personality thing, whatever. But I will have folks track their protein pretty diligently. And what I like to do is get a very solid sense of where they are currently. And then we kind of do the compare and contrast. And oftentimes, what we find is what people are eating with regards to protein for a day should constitute one meal. And it's like, good on you. That's a good meal. Now you need two or three more of those a day, you know, kid. And then you're, you're going to be doing well. And it kind of freaks people out at first, but I'm like, have you been hungry in the past? And they're like, yeah, I'm hungry all the time. I'm like, you won't be this time. (laughs) And then you can kind of have, they're like, well, I don't know if I necessarily want to eat that. And it's like, well, I don't know if I necessarily want to pay my taxes, but there are horrible consequences to not following the laws of nature and the, the law in general. And so, I don't really care what, you know, where that side of it is. Let's get the protein in first. And then we can talk turkey around like whether or not you want some dark chocolate or all the rest of that stuff. So I really try to do a almost like home invasion, like ambush on the person to get them where they are really living. Like, I don't want them putting lipstick on this terrible situation. I want to see it for what it really is. So we document where they are and then we kind of show them, okay, here's where we are. Here's where we need to be two or three meals, two meals and a snack. Like let's figure out what our, our game plan is around that. And then just really supporting them and in, in getting through that. And again, we will sometimes see some digestive kind of lack of digestive fire and then we'll recommend like some, type of digestive support, apple cider vinegar capsules, something like a now food super enzyme or something like that to just support, you know, any type of a hypochloridia kind of situation. It was really interesting. I just saw the first paper ever on improving hypochloridia, low stomach acid with betaine hydrochloride. So they actually put folks on an acid blocker, which really shuts off the stomach pH. And then they had a pH meter that they had the person swallow and it, you know, the pH was low before the acid blocker. And then the pH went up with the acid blocker and then they give them betaine hydrochloride and the pH went back down. So I think that those things are really legit. And appropriate stomach acid levels will go a long way, both in helping to digest the protein and also getting the nutrients out. People can be zinc deficient and a whole host of other deficiencies. And funny enough, it becomes a downward spiral. I'm sure you're well aware You have low stomach acid, so you can't absorb zinc, but you need zinc to produce stomach acid. And so how do you get out ahead of that? That's where some really targeted supplementation can help on that. So we usually try to make people aware, try to give them a game plan, get five, maybe six different protein sources that they just very consistently know how much they need for any given moment. And they always have some of that on hand. And then we just kind of assess for do, are they digesting assimilating protein? Well, do they have any type of digestive issues that we need to support there? And usually some magic starts happening with that. Like people are like, I'm not super hungry. I'm navigating this stuff. I'm they're both leaning out and putting muscle on all of a sudden. So some really cool things happen. And again, we never, ever have folks who have body composition issues that were ever eating adequate protein. Like, it just doesn't happen.
0: I think so much of it, like I've mentioned before, is that we're a very carb-focused culture. It's the pasta, it's the rice, it's the processed carbs, and recognizing that, you know, processed carbs can... You know, it's the net impact of, you know, they impact the gut microbiome, they spike inflammation, they can make us insulin resistant. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned betaine, because we know that over probably by our early forties, late thirties, people are producing less hydrochloric acid. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, given the impact of hydrochloric acid does a couple of things. It helps with protein assimilation, but it also You know, it's part of our innate immune system. And so Mm -hmm. when we swallow pathogens or a parasite, the idea is if our hydrochloric acid is adequate, we're going to be less susceptible. What's interesting to me is the stress, which also impacts immune function. This year, whenever I run a DNA-based stool test, the GI map, which I love... Every single person's had H. pylori this year. Every single person, including myself, I was stunned. So, not having adequate stomach acid, big takeaway, is really, really important for so many reasons. So, I just wanted to interject that before we pivoted again. But I, I find it really interesting that I was one of those people that I went to college. I was never allowed to have a dog. I remember I graduated from college, and what was the first thing I did? I got a dog. And for some reason in my mind, I was no longer going to eat mammals. So for 20 years, I Mm. ate chicken and fish and ate a lot of it. And last year I had a healthcare hiccup, which the listeners know about. And when I was in the hospital and I was actually very sick, I was in the hospital for 13 days. First week, all I did when I was conscious was think about water because I was dehydrated. And for the first time in my adult life, I craved beef like it was my job. That's all Mm. I thought about. I dreamt about burgers. And since that time, I have now... Assimilated a lot of protein into my diet. But, you know, beef is something that I eat multiple times a week. And I say to myself all the time, why did I waste all those years not eating this? Because it's so nutrient dense and it's so satiating and clearly so much better for me. And clearly my body was craving exactly what it needed. Right. So that kind of innate intelligence is really important. But I know that the book that you co authored, Sacred Cow, which anyone that's listening, I really encourage you to watch the documentary and read the book. And I actually had the opportunity to to meet Diana last year at Paleo FX just by pure happenstance. I just literally oh, ran into her and I didn't realize this was the book that you both were. It was probably already written, but that was the book that she was alluding to that was coming out this year. And so how did that pass? Because I would assume this was a passion project for you both. How did that actually come about? Because I think it's one of those books that on so many levels, people really need to understand irrespective of what side of the coin and and you both do such a beautiful job of navigating not inflaming anyone, you're just, it's like, let's provide the evidence. Let's look at it objectively. Let's talk about the things that we know. And let's look at the evidence so that we can come up with some alternative perspectives or let's just be rational. You know, let's take emotions out of it and let's just really dig into the research and what's going on and helping to inform the general public.
1: Thank you. And I, all props go to Diana on this. Like she spearheaded the book and the film. I helped where and when I could I guess on the book, the main, I really got in and helped on some of the things like the thermodynamics, like the Mm -hmm. Uh non-equilibrium thermodynamic stuff, like giant biological systems and obtaining Mm -hmm. energy. I put a lot of thought into that. And then some of the story arc stuff, like I came up with the, the story of a grass world trying to explain like basic ecology. It's been longer than 10 years that Diana and I knew that we needed to do something about this sustainability topic. Like it is all over the news and has been for a long time, but it's really gaining momentum that there are clearly negative elements of our animal production food system with regards to environmental impact and and ethics, like uh, confined area feed operations have some really terrible characteristics about them. But there's also a lot that folks don't realize, like in a standard CAFO operation, All of the cows there spend at least 70% of their lives only on grass. And some of them spend up to 90% of their lives on grass. And people don't realize that. And that starts making this whole concept of like, what is regenerative ag and what isn't regenerative ag a very fuzzy thing to pin down. But people are religiously doctrined around this stuff and they are just certain that they understand everything. And I mean, Diana and I worked on this book for five years and we still learn stuff every day. And it's not to say that we knew everything, but we learned a remarkable amount in putting this together. But we knew that there needed to be an answer to all of the kind of vegan backed books and films and what have you. I will give a huge hat tip to our editor Because when we turned the book in, it was not as nice and not as politically correct (laughs) as what they (laughs) polished a lot of the rough edges off because like, you know, Diana and I have been attacked a lot over the years. And so there's a desire to kind of punch back a little bit. And so I really got to give our editors huge props on that. They had good wisdom in softening those edges and making it as, as here are the facts and we won't try to inflame things. I love you know, throwing a little provocation here and there. And, and so they had to kind of pull some of that stuff out. But, you know, what the book and film really try to tackle and try to do it in less than 300 pages is looking at the environmental, ethical and health considerations of an animal includes the food system. And so we have to go everywhere from like social justice considerations of women in Africa who are not allowed to own land and can only own livestock as their sole means of economic support for themselves and for their families and kind of juxtapose that with wealthy white vegans in Europe and the United States saying that they're terrible people for living their traditional life ways. Like these are things that nobody, you know, talks about. Nobody understands that although all ruminants, all animals that eat grass produce greenhouse gases, so do termites and so do shellfish and so do rice paddies and life produces greenhouse gases. When I exhale, I produce carbon dioxide. I am a greenhouse gas emitter. That doesn't necessarily mean that life emitting anything from methane to carbon dioxide is a negative thing with regards to climate change and this is one of the things that is just a borders on criminality within the kind of vegan centric world there have been claims that animal husbandry accounts for like 80 percent of greenhouse gas emissions and it's an absolute lie this is wholly attributable to the transportation sector. And interestingly, COVID was a fascinating experiment there. We didn't lose a bunch of animals, but all the airplanes quit flying. Virtually all the cars quit driving for a period of time. And both carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions plummeted during this period, although there ended up being more animals around. And so this was a beautiful natural experiment that, you know, kind of illustrated that If we are going to tackle climate change, we really need accurate information. And here's the point that I would make, like if people are, and they should be skeptical that what I'm saying is accurate, but here's what I would put forward. If there are folks that are saying that 80% of the problem, 90% of the problem is animal husbandry, and they are wrong, and we focus all of our efforts in that area, then we are royally and truly screwed. Because we are not going to be in a, it's like trying to perform brain surgery with a blindfold and, you know, oven mitts on. Like, we are not operating with true factual reality. And so, again, I wouldn't believe it just because we wrote a book or did a movie. Like, get in and look at the, you know, the citations that we have and whatnot. But there were just so many different elements of this sustainability story. One of them is really amazing Using grazing animals, there have been huge tracts of land that have been recovered from desertification. Like we track a gentleman down in the Chihuahuan Desert, which he has restored over a million acres of grassland in the Chihuahuan Desert. The folks that have lived there for multiple generations didn't even know grass could grow there, it's just been a desert. And what's interesting is poorly managed livestock can overgraze an area and can lead into desertification completely removing herbivores from grasslands can destroy a grassland you need this dynamic and appropriate interplay between grasslands and herbivores and used to these herbivores moved around the grasslands in a very specific way because of predator prey interaction they were bunched together they moved through an area rather quickly they pooped, they peed, they broke up the ground, and then they left. And that was part of this whole like nutrient cycle and whatnot. And it's very, very different than just letting animals out on pasture with no predator pressure where they go eat what they want to, which tends to be kind of the choicest bits of grass. And then a couple of days later, when that grass tries to reemerge, they eat it again. And that's where overgrazing occurs. So it's really counterintuitive for folks to understand it or to wrap their head around this notion that, too much animal could be bad for grasslands. Too little animal can actually be bad for grasslands, and that the sweet spot is actually the appropriate amount of animal, and that there's a non trivial bit of work that goes into that. But you know, desertification is one of the most pressing challenges that we face with this climate change story, and it appears this is literally potentially the only tool that we have that could reverse this process, and it's literally taking areas that are unproductive desert that are feeding into the total heat signature of the planet because they don't have grass, they don't have water on them and whatnot, and turning it into productive areas that have tons of wildlife. People won't believe this, but the areas from Reno out to uh, Salt Lake City down to Las Vegas, it's called the Great Basin. A little over 100 years ago, that was a grassland. It was an enormous grassland and it was overgrazed because we killed off most of the predators and then we mismanaged the cattle. Putting up barbed wire everywhere actually makes it very difficult to move the cattle in a way that fosters this kind of biodynamic process. But there was a movie made in the 1930s, 1940s talking about the Las Vegas area. It's called Ocean of Grass. And it used to be chest high grass around Las Vegas. And now people can't even believe that that was the case. But that is something that we could use grazing animals, if appropriately applied, to recover those areas, produce food, reduce heat signatures. And then I guess one final point to all that is that White Oak Pastures, which is a, a regenerative outfit in Georgia, they had a life cycle analysis performed on their meat production, and they sequester more carbon in the process of making their meat than they produce. And this is in stark juxtaposition to the, say like the impossible burgers, which although they are touted as a, an environmental friendly, you know, food, they produce more greenhouse gases than they sequester in the process of their manufacture. So it's a really big topic. Like I've probably done a horrible job of trying to explain it because I'm thinking about like a hundred different things that I I want to touch on but it is a really important topic it's a hot button topic you tend to have people that are not fence sitters on this story at all but they also tend to be one in one of a couple of camps and it's very difficult to get people to peek over the fence and look at the other side of what this story may encompass so it's uh it's been a really interesting process so far and i will say this for people that are maybe in this more ancestral health part of the world We've done a terrible job of coming together around projects like this. The The vegans, you know, the vegans, when they crowdfunded the movie What the Health, they raised like three million dollars in a weekend. And it took Diana over five years to get less than a million dollars to get this movie put together because we have such totally de- I think there's a lot of different reasons, but for good or ill folks in this kind of ancestral health space, although it is a lifestyle, it is not a religion for the bulk of people. And that is probably good in some ways. It is bad from the perspective of being able to get out and rally the troops and raise money and have people on a common page. So I don't know if that touched on everything that you wanted to hit with that, but that's kind of a big picture, very bouncing around overview of Sacred Cow.
0: No, you, you did a beautiful job. And I think the thing for me that I found so interesting on so many levels, you know, I'm, you know, the and I'll be the first person to say, I am a consummate, huge animal advocate. I have two dogs. We have a lizard. You know, I'm the person that gets, you know, all warm and fuzzy when I think about animals, just any animal. I'm a huge animal advocate. But I think one of the things that really impressed upon me was when I watched the documentary with my husband, because, you know, now that I, when I get really excited about a particular podcast, I'm like, "Oh, we got to watch this together. You'll you really find this interesting." And it was evident to me, you know, watching these farmers, like they wanted their animals to have a good life, and they wanted their animals when they went to slaughter to you know, have clearly they care for these animals. They respect Mm -hmm. these animals. They wanted them to die with dignity. And so there's this whole area where they're talking about, it was somewhere in the Northeast. My apologies that I don't remember somewhere in the Northeast where, you know, these farmers came together to create a better place for their animals to go to be processed. And I was really touched because I think that when we talk a lot about that vegan agenda, there's always this, you know, it's just, it's cruel, 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 well, we are designed to eat animals. I mean, we are designed as human beings to eat animals. I know that I'm preaching to the choir when I say this, but you know, it definitely gave another side of you know really seeing how farmers, how much they care about the quality of food, how their animals live. The other thing that really I thought was fascinating is I think it was polyphase farms when they were taking the cattle and they were moving the cattle, much to your point about saying if you over- If the animals spend all their time on one patch of pasture, then it's going to be overfarmed. But the impact of, you know, you have less runoff, you have less parasites, Mm -hmm. the animals, there's more biodiversity, all these things that I think we just don't talk enough about. And, you know, lastly, I want to just interject that when Game Changers came out last year, it was like, and I'm sure for you, it was 100 times worse But all of a sudden, it was like every person was coming out of the woodwork, providing justification for why, you know, veganism was a superior way to live. And other than, you know, cherry pick science, which, again, I know you're very familiar with. I think it's really important to have these discussions. And even though they're sometimes hard, they make people uncomfortable. It's important for us as human beings to entertain the possibility that we may not know best. And I think because we're the same age, I can say this comfortably. Much like politics has shifted, like it used to be very part, you know, people were very bipartisan and they would listen to you know differing opinions. We now gotten to a point where everything's polarizing and people are just angry and pissed off, irrespective of what camp they kind of sit in. And that's really not the way we're designed to be. We're designed to evolve, shift, and change throughout our lifetimes, and that comes to comes down to even the way we look at our food and the things we choose to eat. So I hope that you know, people will take an opportunity to watch the documentary, read the book. I think it's really an important book. It's going to be one of my top 10 of the year for people to really educate themselves and and to open up their minds and recognize that there might be more to this than they're really aware of.
1: Thank you. Yeah, there definitely is a lot more to the topic. And whether Diana and I got all of this right or all of it wrong, There's a lot more to it, you know, and so there's a lot more details, a lot more nuance, a lot more things that folks need to consider before they make decisions around what they think is ultimately the uh, say, like where we should be making policy at like national and international levels around food systems. Like if you are absolutely certain that animal husbandry is the worst feature of the greenhouse gas emissions that we're facing. I hope you're right, because if you're wrong, and we're focusing all this energy and all these resources into that, then we are not looking at the real causative features. And again, maybe we're nuts, maybe we're completely wrong with that. Or maybe folks that are able to license the intellectual property of their fake foods, like Impossible Burger and Beyond Burger and whatnot, maybe those people are spinning a yarn that makes their stuff look really favorable and they're running a model that looks remarkably like all technology companies like to do get ip intellectual property license it run up its valuation sell it and then hopefully you know something pops up on the next you know go around with those things there is no ability to do that with small decentralized farms there is no intellectual property to own there is nobody that's going to be ultimately in charge of that whole process and that is a stark difference to the world That is run essentially from like a a Monsanto level down with.
0: At some point, we've all been sold a big slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Weight gain is one of many symptoms that our hormones are in decline, especially as we navigate perimenopause into menopause. Dr. Anna, who is a great friend of mine, is an OBGYN who's treated thousands of women just like you and I who experience increasing dryness and even pain in the bedroom as they get older. Jolva is the solution Dr. Anna formulated for her own clients, and it has since been loved by over 100,000 women. It's a feminine cream with DHEA that helps the body regenerate moisture from the inside out. 92.8% of Jolva users experienced a significant improvement in the first four to eight weeks. Get 10% off your first purchase of Jolva by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's dranna.com, Cynthia, and get 10% off your first
1: purchase. Genetically engineered crops with the appropriate uh, chemicals and fertilizers to go on them. that get plugged into a food production system that the literally the intellectual property of the way that that food is processed and turned into meat-like substances is owned by a supranational corporation. That doesn't mean that they're wrong, but it begs some investigating before you just say, "Oh, they're growing meat in Nevada, or you know, whatever." It's fake meat, so it's got to be better. Like, if that's the level of interest that people have on this stuff, then we're kind of doomed, and we deserve what we have coming down the the way for us.
0: And I think it also speaks to the fact that if you are eating a particular diet and you're still craving meat, but you're choosing not to eat meat, you're and that's why I shared that story of how I hadn't eaten. Right in a long time. And that's what my body craved. And now I eat it all the time. And I'm so happy I do. And I now know better. But the point is, is if you're trying to make fake meat products because that's what your body's craving, it's like you're denying your body what it inherently needs. And there are ways to consume animal products in an ethical, feasible, reasonable way. And you know, one point about the book that I want to make sure I touch on, because when I was mentioning on social media that we were connecting. People were surprisingly read sacred cow that grass-fed beef was not, you know, significantly healthier than, you know, the conventionally raised beef, which I found really fascinating. And I definitely want to just briefly touch on that. But I'll just share something funny. I was in Whole Foods, and the Beyond Beef sausage, I guess, had kind of fallen on its side, and in a very Seinfeld-esque situation. My boys looked at this package where it, you know, if anyone lived by, I'm really dating myself, by the Seinfeld years, there was a whole shrinkage, and it was the funniest thing because the sausage had kind of morphed into this, you know, really compact-looking, goofy, ridiculous. It was a very much a Seinfeld moment. But my kids looked in, they're like, "Seriously, people eat that?" And I was like, "Yes, <laughs> they do. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in the store." But the point of why I'm sharing this is. I think it's a, what I found most interest. Well, one of many things. One fact, little factoid that I found interesting is obviously we aim to eat grass fed meat, and that's what we we choose to do. That's where we spend a bulk of our dollars because we have teenage boys. But what I found interesting, and I know in the book clearly you and Diana were struggling with this, was that other than like I think the omega three composition, you didn't see a lot of difference nutritionally between grass-fed versus conventionally raised meat. And I think that's a point that I found surprising. And I kind of said to myself, okay, this is one of these circumstances where perhaps I need to open up my mind and just acknowledge if I'm doing this, I'm doing it for other reasons. It's not necessarily that it's nutritionally superior to foodlot beef.
1: Yeah. That is one of the thorniest points <laughs> of the book. And, you know, it's funny We've had very little blowback from the vegan scene. Like hardly anybody has sent anything negative about us. Like we expected all kinds of terrible stuff. There's been very, very little. It's almost like the book is so good that they don't want to bring any attention to it on the (laughs) vegan side. On the regenerative ag side and kind of the meat elitist side, people have absolutely eaten us alive. And they are convinced that they did a better job of reading the research than we did so like that omega-3 omega-6 point it within the meat when you i wouldn't be surprised if an animal that is living on clover has a remarkably different nutrient profile than one that is eating say like the silage that is left over after a corn or a wheat crop has been used but both of those Are legitimate applications of regenerative agriculture. And in fact, it will not work unless we have both of those things going on. So then you kind of have to take an average of all of these inputs. And it's just really important to be clear. Pastured dairy is exceptionally more nutritious than conventional dairy. Wild caught fish, shockingly more nutritious than farmed fish. But when you look at the kind of muscle meat composition of animals raised on grass exclusively versus, you know, the conventional process, which, again, the conventional process, they're on grass 70 percent of their life, at least anyway. And people just kind of forget that. But there is virtually no difference between them. And to the degree that there is a difference, we're talking about like if we were to make the omega-3s pennies relative to a dollar Conventional beef has one penny, grass-fed beef has two pennies, but we still are talking about those pennies in terms of dollars. And would again put it in context, a two-ounce piece of salmon, one or two-ounce piece of salmon has more omega-3s than eight pounds of grass-fed meat. So when people are getting wrapped around the axle of omega-3s as it relates to grass-fed meat, this is really silly. I mean, it is legitimately silly. They don't know what they are talking about. And I'm not trying to be a jerk with that. But, and this is one of the funny things. What do Diana and I have to win or what is going to improve our position by not just getting this wrong, but to we literally were prepared to just lie. We were like, maybe we'll just lie about this. But the reason why we didn't want to just lie about this is because we knew the vegans would be scrutinizing every single line of the book. And if we made a dubious claim like that, that was easily dismissed, then literally every other thing that we have in the book is questionable. If a biochemist got that wrong, got wrong, the nutritional composition of meat, of one thing versus another then what the hell else did i get wrong you know how can you keep any of that credible now granted any book is going to have errors either because you just screwed up or you know whatever but that was a biggie but we lit and i tortured the data i like tried to do everything i could to just put a positive spin in it it just wasn't there but man people get cranky and lose their minds on it and so it's either they could look at it as oh wow those guys actually had some integrity Or we're idiots and, you know, all these other people know the, even though when I was at the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center, what I did was isolate different lipids in uh, cancer and autoimmune studies. So I would take red blood cells, extract the lipids out of them, and then run them through a GCMS, a gas chromatograph mass spectrometer, and identify all these lipids. So these folks that are saying that we didn't know what we were talking about <laughs> have done more work in these areas apparently than I have. Well,
0: I applaud you and Diana for you know leading with integrity. Are you familiar with Peter Singer's work? Yeah. So at the same time, I was reading Sacred Cows, I was reading The Way We Eat: Why Our Food Choices Matter, and found it really interesting and and certainly very aligned with a lot of the principles in the book. But going back to kind of explaining you know, the way that we as a country actually treat our animals before they end up going to another place.
1: Mm -hmm. And there's so much that we could do to improve that process. Uh Like there's a ton that we could do to improve that process. And the interesting thing for me just really quickly is that Impossible Burger is not going to fix that process. You know, Planet of the Vegans is not going to fix that process. We touch on this in the book, but We have to have grazing animals for our grasslands. It's a non-negotiable feature. So people are kind of like, okay, we'll rewild those things. Okay, what do we do with those animals? We'll just let them live. Okay, There are no predators anymore. Do we reintroduce wolves and mountain lions? Uh, I don't know if I want to do that. Do we let coyote populations explode to manage them? Uh, I don't know if I want to do that. Well, then we need to manage them in some way. Well, we'll just let them live their life. Okay, now we have a bunch of aged animals that we're putting enormous... We effectively have the horror of our current rest home scenario for humans now applied to animals. Do we euthanize them? Do we... Not euthanize them because it's illegal, but we just give them a little extra morphine here. And I, I mean, it just created. We detailed a story of a vegan family that became farmers and they realized that they needed animals on their land to make things work. They need the soil inputs and whatnot. And they had these animals that were going into extreme old age for the type of animal that they were. And they were like, they're in misery. Should we put them down? And their vegan community were like, you are horrible people. We will cancel culture you if you do. So these animals are basically like they end up in this hellish end of life scenario because we are so afraid of death and the natural cycle that we will all play in that story that we make really horrible decisions. And I think it is largely there are horrific elements of what we have going on. But I also think it's reflective of how disconnected people are from this whole process. Yeah,
0: I agree with you on so many levels, because it was both when I read your book, watched the documentary, and then was reading that other book. I kept saying to my husband, I had no idea how smart pigs were. And so you know, how can we go about supporting farmers that are doing really good work to have ensure that their animals are having a really good life? And they're treated with respect and they're, you know, the end of their life is as pleasant as it could be. But I agree with you. I mean, I worked in cardiology and neuromedicine medicine for 20 years and, you know, grandma's 97 and they want to put grandma on dialysis and they want to, you know, intubate grandma. And I'm like, is this what grandma wants? You know, at least let's do for our animals what I wish we could do for our fellow humans and not prolong suffering and not you know because of our own discomfort we're actually projecting it onto you know our loved ones when it's the end of their lives or our animals and you know i think there's nothing harder than having to put an animal that you love to sleep because they're suffering and i think that these farmers you know based on everything i've looked at and read i mean they feel the same way they don't want their animals to suffer but death is a part of life as much as you know birth is a part of life and that's an inevitability that we have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable about.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So what's next for you? I know a lot of my listeners were asking, you know, do you have another book in the pipeline? And I thought to myself, I'm sure you probably are exhausted from a lot of writing over the last several years. I know that your electrolytes are amazing and delicious, but what else are you doing right now?
1: You know, that electrolyte front is actually where I've been putting a lot of focus. It, because it's interesting, a couple of different levels. So I'm definitely active in like the kind of keto low carb space. And I would say that if there is one thing that folks do that consistently kind of trips them up, it's not getting adequate sodium in particular, but electrolytes more broadly. Like if somebody is put on a medically supervised ketogenic diet the dietitian will make certain that they get at least five grams of sodium a day. But when people are just out doing low-carbon ketogenic diets out in the wild, I mean, I was pretty well steeped on the biochemistry of all this stuff. And I had very intermittent success with doing this stuff. I couldn't really fuel my Brazilian jiu-jitsu with just a purely ketogenic diet. And it's not to say that a ketogenic diet is the right thing for all people. It's not, I just do really well with it. But some good friends of mine, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor, they founded Keto Gains and they looked at what I was doing and they were just like, man, you really need more sodium. You need more electrolytes. And like all people have a tendency to do when your coach tells you to do something, you ignore it for the first year, at least. <laughs> And then finally, they're like, "What have you got to lose? Just do exactly what we told you to do." And I did, and it was just—it was unbelievable. Like, I felt great. Some of the sleep problems that I had had ended up fixing themselves. And so we founded this company, Element. That's it. And the thought was, "Oh, we're going to support like the low carb, you know, uh, ketogenic diet space." That was great. And then we got started getting tagged on breastfeeding forums, and these women were like, "Oh my god!" Like here's what I pumped yesterday and it was kind of the exclusive pumpers mm-hmm. forum. Yeah. You know, it was like one bottle with a tiny bit and they're like, and then I took this and then yesterday and mm-hmm. it was like six bottles. And I was thinking about that. I'm like, Oh, sodium down regulates antidiuretic hormone. Mm-hmm. It suppresses cortisol and mm-hmm. it increases fluid volume. That would be really valuable for breast milk production, you know, mm-hmm. and people are told drink more fluids for best milk production. But the thing is, when you look in like a Guyton's textbook of medical physiology, hydration is the water and the electrolytes. Somewhere around like the 1970s, we just took the electrolytes out and, you know, we just had this huge focus on just the water, which has been really bad. People will kill themselves from hyperhydration and whatnot. So we started and we actually have a study that's going to happen at Vanderbilt looking at breast milk production using electrolytes, using the element. And then we started getting tagged on the POTS forums, the postural orthostatic tachycardia stuff. And we just had this amazing relationship grow out of these folks in those communities because they have a devil of a time getting enough sodium in these kids in particular to deal with this thing. And it's really dangerous. These kids will go from seated to standing. And if they're not well-managed, they'll pass out and they can have horrible traumatic brain injury and sometimes die because it's like they've been knocked out and then they, they end up hitting their head. So we've had this really, we've had such a weird and interesting experience where we just kind of wanted to provide something for like the knuckle dragging, athletic, keto, low carb space. And then we had all of these people with these really fascinating medical situations that have benefited from improving their electrolyte intake. And then we had like first responders. We've been doing some work with uh, military folks and people in the fire service, you know, like California wildfire people who usually they have all of these problems of heat exhaustion and whatnot. We sent tons of this stuff to these people and the outfits that we sent them usually you have an expectation of like a 20%. Rate of uh, heat exhaustion, they had none, and so now we're going to get a study, you know, spun up around that. So, I had no thought that I was going to become like a salt mogul, and you know, but that has just become this really fascinating kind of capstone to everything that we're doing because it's kind of this missing piece getting the electrolytes appropriate for just kind of general purposes. But then there are all of these other scenarios that we're discovering that folks really benefit from electrolytes. So that's kind of my like big focus right now is, is learning more about that and talking more about that. So it's been really interesting and it was not remotely where I thought that my life would, would go.
0: Well, I think it's so exciting. And and obviously with all my cardiology background, I did a ton of electrolyte repletion. A ton. And it's one of the first things I talk to my intermittent fasters about. I'm like, you have to replace the electrolytes. I mean, the people that get keto flu really badly. I'm like, didn't I tell you <laughs> to make sure you're getting your electrolytes in? I mean, that's it's absolutely critical. So I could not be more thrilled and excited. How can my listeners find you? Obviously, we will put all the links to your books and your website, but where do you like to hang out on social media? Do you prefer being on Twitter or Instagram, or do you prefer just not being on social media at all with all of the censorship that's going on? I,
1: I do a lot of pump and dump on social media. <laughs> I produce some content, I dump it up there, and then I kind of run. I do very little on social media at this point. And it's kind of a heartbreaker because I love interacting with people. I have a private community that's called the Healthy Rebellion, where it's a monthly deal to sign up on that. That's kind of honestly the main place that I hang out. And again, it's kind of a heartbreaker. My whole 20 years of my career, I've spent on forums and blogs and whatnot interacting with people, but folks are so mean and so cranky and so dysfunctional that the thing that I do, I still do really like helping people. So I try to do a reasonably well-written piece that preemptively addresses questions that may pop up. And then I throw it up there and I'm like, if you want to talk to me later, I'm over on this other place, you know? And the first week that my wife and I did that, it was like, I was on vacation. I was like, my life is so good. And my girls are like, Dada, you're really happy lately. I was just like, hi, diddly ho neighbor. And so I do pop my head into Instagram occasionally. And if people aren't being huge jerks, then I will I will offer a little bit there. But man, it's I'm like a thief in the night. I get in and out. I'm on Twitter a little bit, but I dump stuff onto the different media channels. I just don't spend a ton of time on them. We have our own podcast, The Healthy Rebellion, where we answer Q&A, my wife and I do that. I guess robwolf.com is kind of the main place that I hang out. And then drinkelement.com is where I'm doing a ton of the writing and blogging and whatnot for the kind of electrolyte based front. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm so excited and thrilled for you that you and your family are, are thriving despite 2020s hiccups that it has delivered us with. But thank you so much for your time.
1: It's really been a pleasure. Huge honor. And thanks for being patient on my schedule. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a
0: rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic.